We're going to be reading from Psalm 8. I'm going to read the whole psalm. Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I don't know about you guys, but I feel like life is getting increasingly complicated. Now, I'm a very big sandwich fan, and I think bread gives a great example of how life is becoming more complicated. You see, you don't have to go back very many years to when really there were two choices. White for kids, boring brown for grown-ups. That was pretty much it, with a few exceptions. If you go down a bread aisle in a supermarket today, though, what a difference. You can choose from granary, honey oat, seeded, gluten-free, 50-50, high protein, tiger, rye, soya, linseed, the list goes on. And that's before you even go into the fresh baked roll section. There are so many different breads to choose from now, it's becoming a bit complicated. This seems to be happening in many other areas of life as well. The ways that we understand people and put, groups, uh, put people into groups has become more complicated. If we were to go back even one generation, I would guess most people would know pretty clearly which social class they belonged to. The, the, it was pretty obvious as well. The working class would drink beer, the middle class would drink wine, and the upper class would drink champagne. Now, however, things aren't so clear. Splitting people into only three groups is thought to be oversimplistic. The latest theory is that there are at least seven different social classes in Britain and that there's a big overlap between these different groups. Other categories that we put people into are becoming more complicated. The number of different labels used to identify someone's sexual preferences are on the increase. Many of those in the LGBT community feel they do not fit into any one of those four letters, so they're asking for more letters to be added. The longest one I've seen so far, let me get this right, is LGBTQQIP2SAA. Uh, without a Google search, I couldn't even tell you what those letters mean. In the same way, gender is becoming more and more of a hot potato. There's a growing debate as to whether gender is assigned at birth or whether it's a social construct and we should be free to go back and forth between one or the other or just ignore it completely. Sadly, as this debate heats up, there are lots of people that are being left extremely hurt and confused by it. Issues like what toilets people should use or what changing rooms people should use are becoming increasingly complicated. Life just seems to be getting more complicated. And the thing which seems to be driving this confusion is a crisis over identity. We don't know who we are. Now, most people would agree that human life matters and that people are valuable. But it seems that few people have spent much time considering where that value comes from. Are we valuable because of what we do? How we look? What we own? 
how good we are at our job, how well we contribute to society, how many followers we have on social media, how well we raise our children, if we have children, how athletic we are. Now, if some of those are true, or all of them are true, does it mean that we're only valuable if we earn that value? Well, this morning, we're going to focus on this issue of identity and value. But as we do, you might be surprised to learn that the answers are not primarily found in self-reflection, but actually in looking at our place in creation. As we open up Psalm 8 this morning, we're going to consider three points which will hopefully help us better understand who we are. Firstly, we were created. Secondly, meet your maker. And thirdly, meet the son. So first point, we were created. Understanding who we are begins with understanding and knowing that we have, where we have come from. In verse 5 of the psalm, there are three words which make it very clear. It says, you made him, as in God made him, mankind. The author of this psalm, David, that's the same David who killed Goliath and then went on to become Israel's great king, is celebrating the fact that God made mankind. Now before looking at this more closely, I think it's important to identify a possible concern. Some people may well say that in our modern age of science, surely science has proved that God wasn't involved. You must have to disable the logical, rational part of your brain to believe that we were made by God. Well, actually, there are lots of logical, rational people who've looked at the scientific evidence and concluded that there must be some intelligent design behind the formation of life. You see, the predominant theory in the world today is that life began billions of years ago, deep in our oceans, when six elements bumped into each other and they formed the first strand of DNA. This led to the beginning of life. Now, first inspection, that sounds like a reasonable explanation, but that's until you realise how complex DNA is. You see, DNA contains, contains the code for life itself. It's estimated that there are three million units of information within one strand of DNA, and they're all put in a, a precise, meaningful sequence. The odds of this happening randomly are just astronomical. It'd be like an explosion in a Scrabble factory that throws all the pieces up in the air only to come back down again and recreate the entire works of Shakespeare. <laughs> to say it's far-fetched would be an understatement. To believe that there is no intelligent design behind the formation of life involves just a huge step of faith that people accuse Christians of. And for many people, myself included, the suggestion that we were created by God is actually a more logical explanation. It's also the explanation which offers the best answers to life's big questions. You see, if life really did randomly begin when some elements bumped into one another at the bottom of the ocean, the best answer I can give you for who am I is you're an accident. You may be complex, but you're not significant. Your life has no real meaning because it's random. There's no truth, there's no right or, long, right or wrong, and love is simply a chemical reaction. In the next billion years, the universe that accidentally started life will probably have wiped it out again. Not only will no one remember you specifically, but the entire human race will be forgotten, forever. 
You ask, who am I? The universe says, well, who cares? But actually it doesn't, because the universe is not a sentient being. It's just a great big collection of matter and antimatter. But what if we were created? Then all this changes. If David is right and we were intentionally created by God, then concepts like truth, meaning, love and identity suddenly not only have significance, they can be explored and explained. So before we even ask, who am I? We must first ask, who is God? Point two, meet the maker. Here are three things this psalm tells us about our maker. Firstly, God is. Have you noticed that the first word of the psalm is uh, Lord, all in capitals? This is not a grammatical error. It's how modern Bibles translate the most special name for God, Jehovah Yahweh. It means I am. In the book of Exodus, Moses asked God, what can we call you? And God said, I am. Now names in the Bible are hugely significant and none more so than this one. This name is packed full of so much meaning, it's difficult to know where to begin. If I were to try and explain it, I'd say it means God is real. He exists. But more than that, he is self-existent and unchanging. He has always existing, existed and needs nothing to help him exist. It means that God is absolute and supreme. David starts and finishes the psalm with the same sentence. He says that uh, this incredible name is majestic in all the earth. The dictionary defines majestic as something with lofty, imposing grandeur. Something so big, it comes with a tinge of fear. We love it, but we're slightly afraid of it. And yet David is able to say that he is our Lord. This self-existent, majestic God has chosen to make a people his own. God is both lofty and majestic, but he is not distant. Secondly, God is big. David turns our attention to the stars. Now, unfortunately, as Dan demonstrated for us earlier, living in an area with light pollution and often cloud cover, we often lose sight of how great the night sky is. I'll never forget the night when I, with a group of friends, climbed to the top of Rao Tor in Cornwall and we decided to sleep under the stars. As darkness began to descend, the stars came out and we lay on our backs and look into space. I'd never seen anything like it. I mean, I'd seen the stars before, but to see them in a place where there's no cloud cover and no light pollution, it was like going from the tiny black and white TV we had when I was a kid growing up to the IMAX cinema. It was just incredible. The, light was, the night was filled with light and beauty and wonder. As I looked at it, my head began to spin with the enormity of it. David obviously has a similar moment in verse 3. Verse 3 says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. Don't miss the second part of that sentence. David doesn't want us simply to know who was behind making the universe. He wants us to know how big God is. God's so big, he made it with his fingers. 
That night when I was lost in wonder looking at the stars, I was actually only seeing, again I've got to get this right, 0.0000002% of the stars in our galaxy. They're estimated to, estimated to be between 200 and 400 billion stars in the Milky Way alone, which is supposed to be quite a small galaxy. There are then thought to be over 100 billion other galaxies. The scale of the universe is almost beyond comprehension. So what does that tell you about the enormity of the God who made it with his fingers? Thirdly, he cares for us. In verse 4 of the psalm, David is reflecting on the enormity of creation and how small we are by comparison. He asks this question, What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them? Gazing into space obviously made David acutely aware of how small and insignificant we are compared to the vastness of space. The fact is, we are like a speck of dust on a speck of dust on a speck of dust times several billion. To say we are insignificant and tiny would be an understatement. But instead of causing David to wallow in self-pity, he is amazed. The verses that follow show that this question is not made by David because he is doubting whether God loves us. It's made to express his awe because he can't believe that he does. He can't believe that the God who made the universe cares for us and is mindful of us. Do you know that the mighty, majestic creator of the universe is not only mindful of you, he cares for you? And it gets even better. Look at the, the verse that follows, verse 5. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Not only is God mindful of us, not only does he care for us, he has given us authority. He has set us a little lower than the angels. One writer I've come across this week named Elmer Martins, who was an American Bible professor, puts it like this. He said, if you were to imagine a scale of one to ten with living creatures such as beasts as one, and God as 10, so high is the writer's estimation of humanity, he should have to put him at eight or nine. Listen to this part. It is God and not animals who man is closely, who, who is man's closest relative. Now we're really getting to the heart of why humans are valuable. Our value does not come from how we look or perform or what we own, but from the fact that a mighty, majestic, loving God created us, saying that we are valuable, and gave us authority over creation. Now, I don't know about you, but part of me wants to get up and celebrate that truth. But at the same time, the other part's going, hold on, that's not right. That sounds pretty awesome, but when I look at the world, and particularly when I think of mankind, awesome is a word I would rarely use. Allow me to give you one example. Last week, I did something I've never done before. I left my wallet on the train. I was really tired, I hadn't had enough coffee that morning, and I forgot it. Inside my wallet was some cash and four contactless cards. 
I thought, oh, this is going to be an expensive mistake. That's £30 per card. The following day, to my great surprise, though, my wallet turned up in the post. It came with this... Oh, no, that's the £20 note. It came with this note. Yeah, unfortunately, we're looking after a rabbit at the moment, and the rabbit's chewed part of it, but... Um, it says, I found your wallet on the Stratford to Gravesend train on the 18th of July. Hope you don't mind. I used a £10 note that was inside to pay for the postage. I put the £7.50 change back inside. Apologies if the postage was actually less. I just did a quick search on the prices online. Have a good weekend. Alan. He didn't leave a telephone number. He didn't leave an address. He left no way for me to thank him. He just did it out of the goodness of his heart. Now... When I told other people about that story, how do you think they responded? Perhaps people said, well, that's what you'd expect because we are all made in God's image and we have all been crowned with glory. No, not one person said that. One person did summarise the general feeling quite well. He texted me and he said, wow, you found the one decent human being on the planet. What are the odds? Tragically, acts of kindness like this are the exception, not the norm. We see and hear things all the time where people have acted horribly to one another. And if we're really honest, we only have to look at our own hearts to see that we aren't what we ought to be. Far from living with glory and honour, I'm often selfish, greedy, jealous, deceitful. But worse than any of those, I often ignore my maker or I deliberately rebel against him. The quote we had earlier says I'm more closely linked to God than animals. Yet a lot of the time I act like an animal. There seems to be a disparity here between what we read in verses 5 to 7 and what we see when we watch the news or honestly reflect on our own hearts. This is because Psalm 8 not only looks back to how things started, it looks forward to how they will end. David is pointing us to a time when things will be made right, when man, under God, will rule the earth perfectly. But for this, reality, for this to become a reality, we're going to need help. So my third point, meet the sun. You see, the problem is that for us to rule perfectly, we will somehow need to be made like God. The crown of glory that God wants to give us needs to be earned just not by us. Psalm 8 is quoted in Hebrews 2, where the author raises this disparity between what's being talked about and what our experience shows us. Hebrews 2, starting at verse 7, says this. So he begins, the writer of Hebrews begins by quoting the psalm. So we've heard this bit already. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honour and put everything under their feet. Then he goes on to explain this. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. These verses hold the key to understanding Psalm 8. Right now, when we look at the world, or even at our own hearts, we know things are not right. But where does this passage in Hebrews point us? To Jesus. 
You see, God created us and gave us authority over the rest of creation with one condition. We were to acknowledge him as our ruler. The problem is that creation wasn't enough for us. We wanted God's throne. We turned our back on God's rule. We liked the idea of ruling. We just didn't like the idea of being ruled. So what was God's response? He started by giving us every opportunity to prove that we could follow his commands. But again and again, we failed. Read through your Bible, you will see God's people cannot live up to his rules. So instead, he sent his son to fix things for us. Jesus came down from heaven and to quote that passage in Hebrews, for a little while, he became lower than the angels. He became a man. As a man, he lived a perfect life and then died on the cross. He chose to die in our place. He died for my sin. He bore my shame. He took the punishment that I deserve so that I could be set free. Because of this incredible sacrifice, God crowned him with glory and honour. Earlier I said that if you wanted to be crowned with with, uh, glory and honour, you'd have to earn that crown. Well, that's what's so amazing and scandalous about the gospel. Jesus earned it for you. If you want to claim that crown for your own, Jesus asks you to repent and believe in him. No amount of trying to be good or fix things yourself or earn God's favour will be enough. We are simply called to repent of the wrong things we've done and believe in Jesus. This is where our identity lies, in what God has done for us. Now the question I've got to finish on was, what does this mean? What difference does this truth make to my everyday life? Well, the short answer is, all the difference in the world. The implications and applications of this truth touch every single area of our lives. I'm just going to look at two applications briefly. So firstly, I don't have to look for value in the wrong places. Now I'm a people pleaser. I won't often admit it, but I love to be liked. Now there's nothing wrong with that per se. In fact, it's often a positive characteristic. The problem for me comes from when when other people, what they think of me matters so much, it becomes the place where I find my value. While things are going well and I'm receiving affirmation, it can be hard to identify just how much value I place in it. The test comes when I have to face people's criticism. I'll often try and hide how much other people's opinion of me matters by saying things like, well, I don't really care what they think. But the truth is, sometimes it can feel crushing. There have been numerous times in my life where I've mulled over people's comments and feedback for days. I can get home and I sulk. I don't engage with my children properly. I start arguments with my wife. I will look for anything which offers a brief bit of escape from feeling like I'm a failure, from feeling like I'm not valuable. In these times, I've forgotten where my true value lies. Essentially, I've placed my value in what other people think of me. But how does that change if I remember the truth that my worth comes from the fact that I was created by a loving God and then rescued by Jesus who died in my place? 
Well, my initial reaction to criticism will probably be very similar. I'll feel disheartened and disappointed. That's a perfectly natural response to criticism. But when I remember my worth lies with what Jesus has done for me, not what other people think of me, it will mean that I will be disappointed, but crucially, I will not be crushed. What about you? Are you like me? Do you look to other people to validate you? Do you base your value on how you look? How, you, how your children behave? How intelligent you are? The truth is that if we place our value anywhere but in what Jesus did for us on the cross, you will constantly find yourself either trying to prove your value or trying to pick yourself back up when you feel worthless because the person or place or thing that you've looked to for your value has let you down. Secondly, I will treat others as valuable. This truth has to change the way which we treat other people. Other humans are not just random accidents. They were meaningfully made, intentionally made, by a loving creator. Just stop for a second and think of the person in your life that you find most difficult. Perhaps it's a family member that you've fallen out with. Maybe it's a colleague that you just can't get along with. Maybe it's a neighbour that you've clashed with. Whoever it is, we are called to remember that that person was made in God's image and they are valuable. Now, this can be really hard, especially when that person does not seem to reflect God's image in any way. But again, we need to remember that all of us have failed to live up to the way God has created us. We've all sinned, we've all failed to reflect his beauty. We all desperately need a saviour who can deal with our sin and earn for us a crown of glory. Christian, as we've reflected on Psalm 8 this morning, we've seen that God created us. And incredibly, even though we turned our backs on him, he didn't turn his back on us. He continued to be mindful of us and to care for us. He loved us so much that despite us doing nothing to deserve it, he intervened. He sent Jesus to come and earn for us a crown of glory. Because of this, our value does not lie in how we look, how we perform, what we own. It lies in what Jesus has done for us. I want to finish by highlighting one last thing this passage reminds us. Psalm 8 contains some incredible truths about who God is and in light of that, who we are. These are truths that have been expounded on in numerous books and sermons and lectures. But we mustn't lose sight of how David first shared them with us in a song. This psalm is not a dry textbook. It's a song of worship to the one whose name is majestic in all the earth. You see, to solely believe these truths is not enough. If you want them to shape our lives and our hearts, we have to do more than believe them. We have to rejoice in them. And even more importantly than that, we have to rejoice in the majestic creator of the universe who's bestowed value upon us. These are truths that should make our hearts sing. Let's pray.